This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Military History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jessica Maloney, and with us today is author and historian Donald Meller, who will be talking with us about his new book, Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy, which was published in October of 2019. Donald, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, where did you attend school, what drew you to the study of history? Yeah, um, I um, I was born in Bay, Pennsylvania. It's on the board. It's in, uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania, Colvin Industrial Town and Steel Town. Um, grew up in a working class neighborhood. Um, wasn't too interested in going to college. Eventually, um, sports drew me there and went to a small college in western Pennsylvania called St. Vincent College. Great school. Changed my life. Um, Went on to grad school and um, did some work at Yale and, uh, you know, graduated from the University of Maryland with a Ph.D. And then went into teaching after a brief stint at the Washington Post. And um, I've been involved in academic teaching at a number of institutions, Cornell and Penn, and and uh, now I'm at Lafayette College. And I've been here for a while, and I just retired um, uh, last year. Oh, that's... And uh, too much uh, other work, films and uh, and books, and it was piling up. and. Uh, the, um, the teaching was kind of, you know, not getting in the way, but it was a little too much. Sure. So that's where I am now. I'm, I'm, you know, I just finished uh, the book you mentioned. It's my 10th book. I should say this. I'm not um, trained as a military historian. Never took a military history course in college or graduate school. Um, I became interested in it uh, late in life. Um, not till... Uh, of the 10 books I've done, I didn't do a military history till the sixth book. And that was a, a big book on World War II. And then I did a book on <clears throat> two aspects of World War II, one called D-Days in the Pacific, which was about the gigantic and savage Pacific War. And um, we did some films on that with um, uh, CBS and uh, with Jason uh, Spielberg and uh, an episode Ten-part episode called the ten-part show called the Pacific, and then I did a book on the uh, bomber war over Germany called um, Masters of the Air, and Apple TV is now doing that. Hey, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg are the producers. Um, we originally started with HBO, and now have moved it over to Apple, and we should start producing. We will start producing uh, this year, and we're hiring actors and whatnot. And it's going to be eight to ten hours. Um, it's a dramatic series, not a documentary. And I'm 
I'm also working on a couple documentaries. That's about it. You know, I divide my time between most of my time is devoted strictly sheerly to writing. Get up every day, hit the desk, um, play through and, and either, you know, golf or play tennis, take a swim and uh, try to clear the head and do some light reading. I read a lot of novels in the evening and um, go at it again the next day. It's it's relentless, like Grant's march to Vicksburg. <laughs> you know, it doesn't stop. Yeah. I love it. <clears throat> Sounds like you got some exciting stuff ahead of you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing a National Geographic show on Chicago, and uh, we just did a documentary that's coming out. Um, just came out with Smithsonian on the uh, the Memphis Bell famous plane that was a big first big bomber to complete 25 missions in World War II, and uh, some other projects as well. So, and I've already started my uh, my next book, which is going to be about the end of the war and Grant and the partnership between Lincoln and Grant that brought the war to a close. Um, so it deals with about 10 months of the war, the last 10 months of the war. Great. Uh, focusing on the president and the commander. <clears throat> it was a partnership unlike any in any in military history. Very close. And uh, so um, I, I just moved right on. <laughs> right. So uh, what would you say interested you about to write a book about Grant and Vicksburg? Well, you know, I, I, again, didn't come very, didn't become interested in, in the Civil War until the 90s, 1990s. And I, I think what provoked me uh, was Ken Burns' documentary, a fantastic documentary he did on, on the war. And, but I was curious um, uh, why he dealt so thinly with, um, with Vicksburg which even in my elementary understanding was a gigantic and, and, and immensely important battle. Um, I've done some work with Ken and I, I, I asked him and he said, well, you need images to carry a, a documentary film. And, and he wasn't finding the kind of images you could find for say Gettysburg. So I started reading on this, uh, went down there and, um, you know, um, I thought the battle, uh, deserved a, um, a new look. There had been books pushed on Vicksburg, and uh, I wanted to do a different kind of book. Right. <clears throat> so you start the book um, at Cairo. Can you talk a little bit more about why you started there? Well, that goes to the last question, actually. I, I wanted to write, I'll call it just a new kind of military history that is, I guess you could call it a holistic approach. Um, I don't want to do histories, and, and all my World War II books are like this as well, that just deal bullet by bullet uh, with the conflict, um, sheerly dealing with combat. Say. I try to cast the war in a wider frame. I deal with, um, for example, at Vicksburg, I start with Cairo. And uh, why start there? That's in 1861. Well, you see the emergence of Grant there. He, he takes over this Godforsaken little community and in southern Illinois at the confluence of the Ohio River and the Mississippi and and turns it into a staging area for a gigantic military operation that lasted three years, and that is to conquer the entire Mississippi Valley, not just Vicksburg. And so I had to widen my focus. I, I wanted to deal with um, the evolution of Grant as a leader. Certainly wasn't capable of taking Vicksburg in 1860. But, I mean, he just re-enters military service, 
Um, he had been drummed out of the service years before for drinking on duty. Um, he was a failure in just about everything he tried after that. And he was shelving hardware, you know, um, and uh, leather goods at his father's uh, store in a little town in western Illinois called Galena. And the war comes and he has a local sponsor who puts him up for generalship and he reads to the banker that he's appointed a brigadier general. <clears throat> and um, so, you know, I mean, Grant, Grant you see at Cairo is, is an evolving thing. And um, he's, he's not the commander that's capable yet of taking a place like Vicksburg. Nor is Vicksburg the most important spot in the Mississippi Valley at that point. Um, the South built a number See, when the war starts, I mean, this becomes, below Cairo, the Mississippi becomes a rebel river. Uh, it's controlled by the Confederacy, and they surely expected that the Union would try to reconquer it. You know, it was inevitable. They tried. And they built a series of forts um, along the river and just inland to prevent the Yankees from penetrating. These forts extended all the way down to New Orleans. And, and Grant begins that process of reconquest. And as he knocks off one place after another and finally gets to Memphis, uh, then Vicksburg pops up because at that point in eight, late 1862, December 1862, um, New Orleans has already been captured um, by naval forces that, uh, independent of Grant, come up through the Gulf of Mexico and, and a, what was supposed to be a surprise attack. Um, Bailed up those very difficult straits um, below New Orleans and captured the city without firing a shot. The Navy proceeded upriver, took uh, Natchez, took uh, Baton Rouge, again without much resistance at that all. And but Vicksburg refuses to surrender. And so in late 1862, back to that, it still hasn't surrendered, and it's a rebel river from Vicksburg all the way down to near. Baton Rouge, and um, so the Yankees can't use it for military operations, and farmers from the Midwest can't ship their product, which they've done for years, down the Mississippi. And so this causes a lot of political agitation in the Midwest. Lincoln's losing boats out there. Um, he has to open the river for that reason. He has to open up for military reasons. A lot of people thought the war was going to be won not in the East, at places like Antietam and Gettysburg, but it would be won in the West. So um, I shift the focus, in other words, in the war to for, for Burns, for example, in his film, it's pre predominantly on the Eastern theater. And, uh, and I thought the Western theater and the West is where really the war was won, uh, where the Confederacy was broke, broken. Um, there's still two more years of five. Vicksburg surrenders, and get a little ahead in here, but Vicksburg surrenders on July 4th, 1863. It's the same day that um, the Union armies at Gettysburg um, hold off Lee and Lee gets to retreat to Virginia. So Gettysburg and Vicksburg are two signal victories, a turning point in the war. Maybe we can talk a little bit later about why Vicksburg becomes that turning point so early in the war. That's <clears throat> where it starts. It starts at Cairo, on this modest little community uh, that becomes the largest military station in the West. Um, all the gunboats, ironclad gunboats, were first developed in that area. 
uh, in little towns, you know, east and west of Cairo. Navy has its what's called the Brownwater Navy, the River Navy, which plays a huge part in my book, because um, Grant was a river warrior. That's how he mostly he moved his troops by water. And he couldn't have taken Vicksburg, for example, without the help of the Navy. And a man by the name of David Dixon Porter, who's a rear admiral, not a rear admiral, admiral. And um, so um, that's, that's kind of where everything begins. And uh, the wounded were taken back, uh, the Confederate prisoners were taken back to Cairo. Uh, there were immense hospitals there. Um, so it's a great centering point for understanding the war in the West. Right. Okay, so then the book turns back to, to Grant and his early years and his career before the war and his struggles with alcohol. How do yeah. you, I, I really enjoyed the way that you explained his early years. How do you think those, the struggles that he had affected his actions in the war? Well, that's a great question. And um, it's, it's, it's a real live issue in Grant historiography. A lot of historians have gone at this. And um, I think I have some new things to say. I mean, it's clear to me that um, that Grant, from a very early age, beginning with his service in the 1840s in, the, in Mexico, in the Mexican War, um, had a drinking problem. Okay? And he drank sporadically. He was a continuous drink. Uh, there's no question he was an alcoholic. Uh, he, he couldn't uh, stay away from it. it was a difficult struggle. He did for long periods of time. I mean, one of the great battles of the book is Grant's personal battle with the bottle. And um, his problem was he um, he couldn't handle his booze. Um, two or three drinks would set him off sometimes crazily. And uh, so, uh, and and generally, when he he doesn't drink when the fighting's going on, he doesn't drink on the battlefield. There's no evidence that he drank when, you know, in his family around, especially when his wife was around. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of drinking going on in the Civil War. There's books still to be written about drinking in the Civil War. And, and drinking was especially uh, almost epidemic proportions uh, at, uh, at, at Cairo. And, uh, and Grant parked up, and he drank right throughout the war. Again, uh, he was drink on a Tuesday, and then he wouldn't drink for three weeks. Uh, and, and, and this is how it went. Um, and, uh, and for long periods of his life after the war, he, he licked the problem. And uh, you're always, I think. And why do you think other um, treatments of Grant might have avoided talking about his drinking problem? Well, you know, that's a crazy thing. I think there's almost um, a, a kind of, a, you know, studio-pietistic view of Grant, you know, that you, if you read this liquor thing into the biography, I mean, if you introduce it, it you know, it, it diminishes Grant. I think, it, you know, it enhances Grant. He becomes more complex. He becomes real, you know. Uh, he's somebody you can empathize with. He has a problem and he's trying to lick it. And uh, for long periods of times, he does just that. And uh, I think it humanizes him. Um, and um, other scholars don't just want to run away from it. There was one episode, for example, during the Battle of Vicksburg, um, where he was, um, his army was being threatened. And um, I won't go into all the specifics, but we can come back to that. Uh, it was in a threat, threatened situation. Uh, he's uh, besieging Vicksburg. 
but there's another army behind him in a town called Jackson, about 40 miles away. And it's commanded by a general that Grant respected, Joseph Johnson, and uh, who would fight Sherman at the end of the war in the last battles of the Eastern Theater. And uh, Grant felt that Johnson was about to move on his rear. He's, he's facing Pittsburgh and Johnson, you know, on his back. And so he went out to check out the situation out near where Johnson was supposed to be stationed on a river called the Yazoo River. And there's sense that he drank, but, well, he went on a bender on the, uh, on the boat and, uh, the, um, and had to be put to bed, uh, woke up the next morning and, uh, he thought he was in a town called Satarsha, which is where he was headed. But the boat turned around and um, brought him back to where he started. There were witnesses on the boat, you know, one, a, a close associate of Grant named Charles Dana, who changed the story a couple of times. You know, and first he said Grant got roaring drunk and then he, you know, he trimmed that a little bit. And uh, there was a reporter there named Ted Wallander. And he has a very vivid account of Grant's drinking escapade, which was crazy. He got on a horse, he rode to the Indian camps. He fell off the horse. Uh, he had to take take it back in, in, in what was called an ambulance a wagon um, back to his encampment, etc. And for years, nobody believed it. But I, I found some pretty compelling evidence that uh, that supports Cadwallader's account. But um, and it also, you know, it's disruptive. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, it, it, it contradicts a lot of the scholarship that said Grant never drank when. He was in in peril situation. Now he doesn't drink on the battlefield, but Vicksburg. This is probably the most anxious Grant had been in the whole campaign. He's really worried about Johnson, so his army was in peril, and he did drink when he shouldn't have been drinking. And um, so I think you know probably a lot of historians don't want to believe Cadwallader, but I find him a pretty compelling um, uh, witness. As do some Grant. Biographers like William McFeely, who won a Pulitzer Prize for a book on Grant, a very good biography. I think McFeely makes an interesting comment that, you know, there's too much evidence um, to discount this. Much too much evidence. Definitely seems like an underexplored area of Grant's life. Yeah, and you find things like people said Cadwalder wasn't even on the boat. And what I found, and, you know, at the Chicago Public Library, I found, you know, Cadwalder worked for the Chicago newspaper. I found a dispatch that was filed, a newspaper story that was filed from Satarsha on the very day that that boat was in Satarsha. Now, who else you know, would have been a Chicago reporter in Satarsha except Cadwalder? He's there. There's no question about it. So, that at least is, is is one of the indisputable facts. Uh, the other stuff is up is, is up for grabs. There's a lot of controversy about it. Right. So the action in the book then moves to Fort Donaldson. What do you think was the most important factor in the success there? Well, you know, here Grant is. I mean, he moves out from Cairo, and he's going to use the Cumberland and Tennessee rivers, um, which run north uh, and dump out into the Ohio. And the Confederates had built forts along the Cumberland and Tennessee, Fort Henry and Donaldson. And working with the Navy, um, and with naval gunboats, um, he takes rather easily Fort Henry and then moves through the woods 
to a place called Fort Donaldson, and uh, and uh, it's uh, it's a tough winter fight. Um, Grant makes a big mistake there. He he leaves the battlefield. Uh, he had to leave the battlefield. The, the naval commander at the time was uh, was injured and wanted to. He couldn't communicate with Grant by you know any other way, but having Grant come to him. And he was going to inform Grant that he's pulling the gunboats out. And so Grant went to see him. But he didn't leave anybody in charge of his army. And the Confederates broke out of Fort Donaldson, which the Yankees were besieging, and almost overran the, uh, the Union Army and escaped. And Grant returns to the battlefield while this chaos is going on and regroups. Uh, he's very good, Grant. Uh, you know, making not he's impetuous often, but he makes quick decisions and he's very decisive on the battlefield. And he was there at Donaldson, and he turns this ugly situation around within an hour and a half. And the momentum swings to the Union side, and they almost take the fort that night and, and took it surrender the next morning. They performed brilliantly on the battlefield, but he did make mistakes, and he would continue to make mistakes. In these, in these early battles, um, and, and, and as well as at Vicksburg. And again, I think this this humanizes. I mean, this doesn't it doesn't diminish what he's doing. I mean, with the with this immense job he's given, you know, conquering huge swaths of southern territory all the way down to Vicksburg. Um, a young he's a young man, and. Um, He's going to make uh, he's going to make a lot of mistakes. He'd only been a quartermaster in, in, in Mexico. He saw a little combat, but he had no real command experience before this. It's amazing. I mean, he consider a guy what a great character for a book. I mean, if you wrote a novel and, and, and you created this guy, who, who the hell would believe it? You know, he's shelving goods in a hardware store. You know, you know a washed up army veteran. In 1861, and in that year, he becomes a brigadier general. And the next year, uh, he takes uh, Donaldson. It's unconditional surrender, and um, he becomes the first hero of the war because it's Donaldson is the first Union victory of the war. You're right to point that out. And then Grant goes down the next year and takes Vicksburg. The next year, after taking Chattanooga, Lincoln calls him back east, and he's put in charge of all Union armies. And he goes to battle with R.E. Lee, and the next year he takes Lee's surrender at Appomattox, and four years later he's president of the United States. So in eight years he moves from a, a hardware store to the White House. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's definitely a meteoric yeah. rise. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's meteoric. It's, 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 it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. It's a great character to wrap a book around. Yeah. That leads me to my next question. The next part of the book, you talk about Shiloh and how both Grant and Sherman made a number of errors, but the Union still yeah. managed to eke out a victory there. Yeah, um, yeah, they go down the Tennessee River, they go down to Shiloh, a Pittsburgh landing was called, it was the steamboat landing. But the Confederates were in a, a, a place called Corinth, which is like right down the road, about 12 miles. And um, this gigantic army forming there to reverse what Grant had taken from the Confederates at Donaldson. When he took Donaldson, he took great parts of Kentucky. In Tennessee, so the South wants to regain them. They're mobilizing this 
tremendous army there under some of their very best generals. It's an all-star cast. And uh, Grant um, sets up his encampment. Um, and that encampment, you know, it's a large army, and over 40,000. And it's vulnerable because Grant doesn't have the troops entrenched, you know, and dig trenches and dig um, what were called earthen forts, you know, Confederates are out in Humber, but they're dug in well. Um, 
good lines of sight. And uh, this is Christmas of 1862, and Sherman's army is slaughtered. And uh, there's no other word for it. And uh, they pull out. And, of course, Grant's, you know, got his tail between his legs. He's retreating from Mississippi. And he eventually goes down to Vicksburg. Sherman remains, uh, you know, there. He's not in Vicksburg, obviously, um, which, you know, no Yankee boot had set foot in at this point. But uh, Sherman's in Louisiana, right across the river, uh, the Mississippi River from Vicksburg. And Sherman joins and jo- joins up with Grant. I should say Grant over Sherman. And uh, they begin then that long, you know, test to try to take Vicksburg, which will last from January to July. So Grant doesn't actually come across as any great military strategist uh, in this whole situation here. Um, she, you mentioned before it was really more about his ability to make quick decisions uh, yeah. when faced with failure, as opposed yeah. to him being any kind of brilliant military genius. Yeah, he's, an impro- he's a master of improvisation. Um, flexibility is, a, you know, uh, that got him in a lot of trouble later in the war when he took over by the sluggish army of the Potomac. They had been suffering a lot of defeats with some victories in the East, but it was an army that uh, had a very formalized command structure, um, a lot of drill, parade ground stuff, Officers dressed in dress uniforms with swords and things like that. Grant had a ragtag army, and um, you know, uh, they marched into your town. You'd, you'd run up in the attic, you know. I mean, it's all these guys, uh, long hair. They're woodsmen, western farmers. Uh, they're not all detailed, you know, in, in crispy military uniforms. Grant wears a private blouse you know, most of the time, mud splattered boots. Uh, but the army was. I mean, they had a sense of cohesion, and, uh, and they believed in their commander. And, uh, and Grant was, you know, Grant's a brilliant writer. I mean, his memoir that he wrote just before his death, um, uh, finished it days before his death, and uh, is one of the great pieces of American literature in the 19th century. And um, but he, during the war, he wrote these tremendously... Um, clear. Um, he wrote this kind of Hemingway is diamond hard prose, and you couldn't help but understand what an order meant, um, where he wanted you to be, at what point in the battle he wanted you to attack. And he wrote these on the fly, you know, often on, you know, from the back of a horse uh, while the campaign's leading. And, uh, and, and they're so clear. And uh, so, you know, he, he's an easy commander to Imagine that um, where would we be um, without Grant in the 
out an overall plan and um, and leave the details to the battle. Because as he pointed out, like when he's fighting General Lee in the East or when he's fighting this guy Pemberton, the commander of Vicksburg, who, by the way, was, was from Philadelphia of all places. But uh, when he fights, he says, well, I'm not going to plan a strategy unless I know what they're doing. I'm going to be reacting to their movement. And so it, it, it's going to call for a lot of on-the-spot thinking and rethinking. And so he doesn't have a scripted out plan for a battle. And uh, that was his genius, actually, to be in the middle of a battle and have the cool perspective to be able to assess where we're weak, where we're strong, um, are we getting beaten back? If we are, how do we turn this around? Um, the mind's moving all the time. Grant's um, not a genius. I don't want to use that word, but he has a brilliant military mind. War makes Ulysses Grant. I mean, it, it, it threw him back into a position of high respectability from the first store to you know, generalship in the army. War made him, uh, made him a national hero, made him a president. And that's where he was at his best. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Moving on to the next section, um, this is where you talk about the Navy and their struggle on the Mississippi. This section, I think, best illustrates that the fight for Vicksburg wasn't just fought on, Grant, on land by Grant and his army. Uh, the Navy obviously played a vital role in the victory. Yeah, yeah. Um, he cooperates in, in, in eventually taking Vicksburg. Um, from the time he arrives in, in these camps in Louisiana, the really rough winters. Winters are tough, can be very tough in Mississippi. Troops camped in some horrible conditions, swamps just across the river from from uh, Vicksburg. They could see Vicksburg, and uh, but um, the water is undrinkable. Uh, most of it, um, uh, disease spread through the army and became rampant. Every kind of disease, from typhoid. Uh, to malaria, to dysentery, you name it, they have it. And you know, his, his, his troops are dying like flies. In fact, um, and, and the river is at a high tide at that point, and um, it's um, it's flooding the camps. And there's no place to pitch a tent. Um, the Yankee soldiers had to... Uh, almost lived the day out on the levees, on these high wooden, you know, um, blocking, you know, the, these levees that block the overflow of the river. And uh, when Mary Livermore, a woman from Chicago who worked for a, uh, a called the Sanitary Society, which delivered medicine and uh, all vegetables, fresh fruit uh, and letters and brought these down regularly to Vicksburg. When she was approaching Vicksburg, her first sight of Vicksburg said, she said it was coffins, coffins floating in the river. What was 
happened is the river would break through the levee, and the guys had nowhere to bury their comrades except on the high ground of the levee. So they slept close to the dead there. And when the water broke through, the coffins and sometimes coffins of graves, the bodies and the coffins were were thrust into the river. And uh, that's the sight you saw when she arrived there. So it's amazing Grant recovers from that. But what he has to do is figure out a way to get past Vicksburg, below Vicksburg, where there's dry ground. Um, if I can sketch a little geography here, if you go north of Vicksburg, north of the Yazoo River, there's this gigantic swamp, if you will, you know, called the Yazoo Delta. It's one of the great cotton-growing areas of the South, but it's flooded a lot of the year, and it has almost no roads, and its rivers are almost impassable. So you can't, he was told, at least when he got there, that you can't go in that delta. You can't take Pittsburgh from the north. You can't take it straight on from Louisiana because you're running right into those batteries, you know, and there's no place to land. The town was located right on the river itself, and the town rises up rather steeply. It's, it's a hill town, and the Confederates would have had a huge advantage. Grant would have been, it would have been suicidal to hit it that way. So the only way you can get at this place is what Grant had tried before to get in behind it. But to do that from Louisiana, you've got to march an army all the way down to a, a point south of Vicksburg and cross the river below Vicksburg into Mississippi and attack it from that side. And that's eventually what he did, but he couldn't do it for a long time because that country south of his camps in Louisiana was flooded. The entire towns were underwater. So he's really in a predicament. And he needs the Navy, as you point out, and to help him out to move his armies. But wherever his armies are moving around Vicksburg, <coughs> throughout the entire campaign, until he gets to Mississippi, it, they're, they're moved on, 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 on troop ships and, and, and with the protection of ironclad gunboats and uh, commanded by Admiral, by Admiral Porter. And Grant actually does, with Navy cooperation, do what everybody thought was impossible. Actually, it turned out to be impossible. He went into the Yazoo Delta on three occasions and um, tried to get Vicksburg that way. Um, he was, I won't go into all the expeditions, but I'll tell you how precarious it was, and it, it set Lincoln's you know, Lincoln on edge when he learned that Grant was fooling around in those swamps. Um, he goes up into, in these, he didn't have any maps, by the way, in these, you know, forested areas that are flooded, um, and uh, trees overhang these narrow streams. They create a kind of canopy which cuts out the sunlight. It's very dark and gloomy, all kinds of forest creatures. The Confederates are tracking him as he's going through there. And he's got his best gunboats. He needs them to take Vicksburg. And he's got Porter, the guy he really needed, commanding the gunboats. And he's got his number two guy, Sherman, commanding the troops. So he's risking Sherman, Porter, and the gunboats to go on this unbelievably reckless and precarious mission to get in behind Vicksburg. And they get trapped. Um, 
rebels start cutting trees down in front of the boats and behind the boats. They trap the boats um, deep in the swamps. They attack, and at that point, Porter is miles ahead of Grant, who's coming, uh, of Sherman, who's trying to move through on, on troop ships that can't get through because they try to blast through. The overhanging trees knock off their chimneys, and uh, so they have to march, and they're behind him. And Porter sends a message through a black flag that offers to cooperate. The Germans that get here, they're about to attack. He tells his crew, Porter does, that we're going to be boarded by these guys. Uh, they're going to come on board. It's going to be hand-to-hand combat, and we're, and we're going to probably lose. We're outnumbered. And in that case, we're going to blow up the boats and, uh, and escape the into the swamp and see if we can find our way back to Pittsburgh. Well, nobody expected to live till the next day. But it, it's like an old hokey western. I mean, Sherman gets there just in the nick of time on a borrowed horse and rides up to Porter, who has just had three naval officers shot within two feet of him. And just um, as the Confederates are ready to move, and he scatters the Confederate army and they back out of they back out of the swamps. They can't, they don't have enough room. The um, embankments are high and streams narrow. They don't have enough room to turn the boats around, so they back out. And that ended the swamp expedition. <clears throat> Grant does what is, I think, one of the most audacious moves of the war. He, he talks to Porter, and Porter agrees to try to run his gunboats along with transports that will carry supplies. Uh, past the Vicksburg batteries. And at the same time, it's really serendipitous. Um, the waters in Louisiana start to recede. It gets the tops of buildings and towns that have been submerged. And Grant gets word of this. It ain't clear at all, but um, it's going to be rough to get through. It's still flooded areas, but the floodwaters aren't as high. That hadn't happened. Um, you know, here was Grant sitting around, kind of like Noah, waiting for the waters to recede, and, and they do. And it's just at this point, when he's backing out of the swamps, that he's under tremendous pressure from the north. Uh, the pressure from in Congress to remove him from his command, he and Sherman, and perhaps Porter. Uh, Lincoln's writing him his letters, stay out of the swamps. Uh, Lincoln's losing confidence in him. Lincoln sends a spy down from the Defense Department, Charles Dana, uh, to spy on Grant Camp. Uh, the idea that he's there to undertake another mission for the War Department. Um, but um, this is this is the point where Vicksburg could have been lost, and Grant would have receded into history as a non-empty real. You know, uh, yes, he was the first hero of the war. But, you know, his star would have been eclipsed uh, quickly. But at just this moment, uh, they get through the batteries um, and take actually minor damage. And Grant marches his army, takes an entire month, through Louisiana. And the um, first day of April, they cross the Mississippi, they cross in the Mississippi River into the state of Mississippi. And that's the largest amphibious invasion by an American force um, in North America up till the uh, up till D-Day. 
So the last section of the book, you talk about the actual fight for Vicksburg, the siege, and then the victory. I think this part uh, just shows how many different factors played a role in the victory, from Johnson and his apparent unwillingness to fight, Pemberton and his inability to make decisions. What do you think was yeah. the most important factor in the victory? Well, you know, General Pemberton, uh, you know, John Pemberton, um, you know, <clears throat> I don't think was the man to hold Vicksburg, and uh, he wasn't a great commander, and it, it wasn't like fighting, fighting Robert E. Lee. <clears throat> but they had other good commanders, and um, uh, when he, <clears throat> he was in a tough position um, when he went into Mississippi, when Grant went into Mississippi, because he lands in a place where he, there's no good maps. Uh, he has to depend on slaves as a guide. <clears throat> Excuse me, an African-American slave takes part in the campaign, you know, providing intelligence information to Grant on every aspect of, you know, the terrain, rebel supplies, around the rebel army, things like that. So Grant, you know, is actually, when he lands, he's between two armies. He's got an army in Vicksburg, almost as big as his. And he's got an army, a relief army, that's forming out to the east in the capital of Mississippi, which is Jackson. And don't forget, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, which from Mississippi, he and his brother had sprawling plantations just below Vicksburg. In fact, Grant would later take over these plantations and turn them into slave freedmen's communities, communities for free blacks, and turn it into what he called, what he hoped would become, and he used this word, a Negro paradise. So the Davises, this is their state, and Davis is alarmed, and he's sending what reinforcements he has. The Confederacy has a manpower crisis, but he sends what he can, and it goes to Johnson. And as I said, Grant respected Johnson, so he's, he's between two armies. Uh, and uh, he could have easily lost this thing, but he does a smart thing. He uh, doesn't <clears throat> go directly north and try to hit Vicksburg. He landed along the shoreline, you know, 60 miles south, 50 miles south of Vicksburg. But he takes the railroad that runs from um, Vicksburg to Jackson, and he cuts off Everton's supply line. He cuts, he severs the supply line. And then he decides he's going to fight these guys in detail one time. And he wants to draw out Pemberton from the defenses. He doesn't want to get in a situation where he has to take on the whole city 
and that's commanded by Sherman, waiting for Johnson to attack. And so were the people of Vicksburg waiting, and they waited in vain. Johnson never showed up. Um, he got close. He surveyed Grant's position, though it was too powerful to challenge, and rode back to his camp. And that's where he was um, in the Jackson area when, when Vicksburg surrenders. But I try to go inside the city and tell what it was like, the horrors of being in a besieged city um, that is being constantly bombarded. Now, you don't hear much about killing civilians in the Civil War. And um, a lot of historians say, well, this is why the Civil War wasn't a total war, like World War II. Um, I know a lot about bombing. You know, I did a book on it an entire book on the Masters of the Air. And, and a lot of that book concerns how people hold up under bombing. I was very influenced when I was writing a book by Aleppo and places like that, Syria. And the hearts of women and children, uh, innocent people, uh, under the bombs. Uh, how, how, them, how, did, you know, how do they hold up? The British supposedly held up very well in World War II. I did a lot of investigation on that and found out that, well, not so much. Uh, we were in an area of very intense bombing, morale, you know, plummeted. And Britain had been bombed as heavily as Germany. Um, their morale would have went down to the base. And, uh, the, um, and using what I knew about bombing and, and working with diaries, southern women, and these women inside Vicksburg, a lot of wrote compelling, actually beautifully written and very evocative diaries of what it was like. And they lived, for the most part, in caves. Caves that were dug into the soft soil of the hill city. And sometimes they'd live in their house during the day when the bombing started at night. Um, they raced to the caves. And the bombs were huge. I mean, they're bombing Pittsburgh from... Ant's army is on the east side of the city, on the west, on the river. Porter's taking over the river. It's the Yankee River now. And he's bombarding it with his gunboat. And he also brings up these mortar tuners, uh, which had to tow up the river. And um, they're enormous. And they have shells that are, you know, that weigh up to 100 pounds. And, and they have, you know... You shoot the pie in the sky. It looks like a fireworks display with a fuse going off. And then they land with tremendous impact. Luckily, a lot of civilians were killed because these things took a while. You could see them and you could race to your cave. But the terror of being under that you know, bombardment, really they're in a, inside a circle of fire, was um, harrowing. And um, so I deal with how Vicksburg, how, and, and the city's also um, running out of provisions. One of the things Grant did is, and this is an ironic, ironic situation, the ironic situation is that the longer Vicksburg held out, the worse things got to it. Because there's no, all the army, all the Confederate army is inside the city. You know, they're back in Jackson. And uh, so Grant's army is free to go anywhere they want. They raided plantations all over Mississippi. And um, they, um, Sold cattle, sheep, you know, um, they broke into storehouses, they destroyed cotton supplies, burned barns, burned plantations, 
Oxford pop and uh, turn most of Mississippi into a blackened wasteland. And that's a story that's not told too often in military histories. And that's where my history, I think, becomes from my background. I'm primarily a social and intellectual historian. It becomes a story of ideas. I, I was able to get into the, the social situation around Vicksburg and how families held up or didn't hold up under the bombardment and under the incessant pressure of the siege, uh, knowing that there was no help available except this long-range hope that maybe Johnson could you know, relieve the siege by attacking Rick Grant from the rear. So women play a big part in my story, and um, slaves do too, not just those scouts. But see, when you're out there, raiding these plantations, um, Lincoln and Grant agree that um, they have to begin to war on um, civilians, um, not just by bombardment, but war on their property, and uh, by stealing everything they can, by destroying crops in the field, and, um, and by stealing slaves, and, and then turning those slaves uh, their slaves back into their camps and using them as laborers not when they're behind union lines in the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation and earlier legislation. And Grant frees in liberating victims. He liberates over 100,000 slaves. You know, when this thing was all over, African Americans in the vicinity considered Grant the great liberator, not Lincoln. He's the man who freed him. And um, Frederick Douglass made that point. And I have a, a little epigraph in my novel, a quote from Frederick Douglass, where he points out that Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, but the only, but that doesn't free any slaves in the North. It frees only slaves in the South. But how can you free them if they're controlled by Southern plantation owners? You have to go in. The Emancipation Proclamation only makes sense if Grant shows up on your front lawn and you're a slave owner and starts stealing your slaves. And uh, that's the word Southerners use for stealing the slaves. Uh, Grant's talking about his liberation, which it was. And so I get into that. And I get into um, the history of the inarticulate, if you will, you know, from people who don't write a lot of diaries, but less oral testimonies that I use, and describe how slaves actually, it's inaccurate. that the Union freed the slaves because so many slaves freed themselves. Just the presence of the army put them into a predicament that, a predicament that was held out a measure of hope because if you could escape and you could get to Grant's army and that meant, you know, you had southern patrols, um, you had ferocious, you know, dogs, they could catch the scent of the slaves. Um, it's very difficult. And uh, maybe you didn't know a lot about the terrain and things like that. But the gutsy decision to try to break away Grant's army. And even those slaves who didn't break away, um, they became different people. And we have this from the diaries of Northerners. That's why the Northern diaries are so terrific. You know, I, I, I did 51 archives for this thing from California to New York. And I found amazing archival material. Um, again, diaries written mostly by 
plantation mistresses who were left alone in many cases. Their, their men are all fighting the war. They're, they're, they're boys and their husbands. And it's just granddad and maybe and, uh, and the mistress and an overseer and maybe 200 slaves. How do you control those slaves? Especially when Grant's army's in the vicinity. So a lot of slaves would approach the plantation mistress and demand, not ask, for certain so-called rights. Um, they're not going to answer the door anymore. Um, they're, they're not going to do the cleaning or just do the cooking. Um, you got to provide pay and, or they're going to leave. And there's these negotiations that go on. I wanted to find out, and I think I did find out, and I tell the readers the story of uh, how slaves were actually free. Freed. Um, not just saying, oh, the proclamation or the army did it. But how it was done, household to household. So the book becomes, you know, a social history of the Confederacy under siege, under attack, and its response. And, uh, and you know, it's actually, you get, if I can reel back just a second, when Grant first invaded Mississippi in late 1862 and had to retreat, when he retreated, and even going in, his armies, he lost control of his kids, of the kids in the army. They were angry. It's like Vietnam. They didn't want to be there. They didn't know the terrain. They didn't like the people. Um, and they saw that slaves were helping the Confederates, and that that released um, men from farm work and, uh, and, and to fight. And, uh, and, and their farmers themselves and their families are in tough situations because in many cases that soldier is the only provider and the war is keeping him away from his children and keeping him away from supporting his family. So they're not happy and, and they have a sour relationship with Southerners and it turns ugly. Uh, they start entering homes which they're not supposed to do. Pull the earrings out of the ears of Southern women. Uh, pull, you know, uh, invade their bedrooms. Um, it was there wasn't a lot of rape. Uh, there were rapes, but uh, it's it's hard to document. There there were undoubtedly hundreds thousands more than are recorded. And uh, but it, it's the intimidation and the destruction. And so when I agree with Grant, the Confederates fought well in the war, but probably for the worst cause imaginable. But they had a point. Um, when the Yankees were in the area, it was trouble. Trouble for the family. Uh, possible endangerment of the wives and children. And uh, and so in their letters, they're referred to uh, by men as well as women as you know, Mississippians uh, as vandals and as visigoths. And that, that's how they're seen because largely what happened in northern Mississippi. See, what happens here is inside a civil war, is occurring, what Karl Marx at the time called a social revolution. He's writing for a Brooklyn newspaper. And it really was. It's, it's, a, it's a war, it's the first American social revolution where one class is trying to overturn a situation where they're at the bottom, the bottom rails on down on top, but you know, it, you know, fights for its freedom. And uh, the American Revolution is a political revolution independence. Um, it's a movement to 
crush independence by the North, Southern Secession, but it's also a movement by Grant's army and other armies eventually to um, free an underclass and with the help of that underclass. And so it is a social revolution and it starts in Mississippi. And I think that's missed largely, as is Grant's role as liberators in most histories, almost all histories of Vicksburg. And that takes me to like the first question to ask when I write, when I write the book. I, I, I really saw that um, this story had to be told. Uh, the story of liberation had to be worked into the story of uh, the, an effort to crush secession. And at the end of the book, you mentioned that you started work on it back in 1997 and that you visited a lot of the locations that were central to Grant's campaign. So how do you think how do you think that that makes your book different from other books on Vicksburg? Well, I don't know if it sets it off that way, uh, but um, I think being new to the project, not having done military history, in the end, it was difficult, but I had to learn too much. But it, it gave me, I hope, a fresh perspective on things, and I could cast a, a, you know, a cold eye on things, and I wasn't just working off other people's books. I wanted to see it anew. And uh, well, I'll tell you an interesting story. It's a funny story. When I was down there, and, and I'm just starting out, I'm, you know, thinking of doing the Vicksburg book. I'm almost sure I'm going to do it. And I ran into a, an historian named Ed Bars. Now, Ed's still walking the earth, and he's in his 90s, and he's a Pacific War veteran, a great guy, and a good historian. And he used to run the military park down there, eventually the whole you know, military park service. And um, Ed's a legend and, uh, among historians, and he's a legendary guide, you know, to tens of thousands of Pacific War teams. He's a terrific guy. So I ran into Ed. I had never met him before, and uh, we spent a day, two days together. And he took me to the battlefield, and Second night, he said to me, Miller, you know why you're going to write the best book on Vicksburg? I said, no, Ed. He said, because you don't know a damn thing about it. I said, well, that's true, but why is that? He said, well, we're, we're kind of, you know, in the forest, and um, and we're not seeing, uh, we're seeing the trees, and you're outside, and you can see the big picture, and hopefully you can bring that big angle, wide-angle view to the battle. And I was helped immensely by people like Ed Bars and a guy named Warren Graybow, who was a geographer who eventually wrote a geographical history of Pittsburgh, who walked me through the battlefield and taught me, reinforced my understanding of the importance of terrain. Battles aren't fought on pool tables, he would say. And, uh, and then he went on to write this indispensable book about, you know, the role of the land and, and terrain plays in Vicksburg. So I, you know, I think that that set me off. You know, when I'm a trespasser. I, I'm not a specialist. Um, and uh, I, I've written books on New York. I've written books on Chicago. I've written books on the coal regions of Pennsylvania, where my relatives are from. I write a book based on my interest in it. I, I, I think, well, well, I'll be reading. I do a lot of reading, and it's like, oh, maybe, maybe they have a, you know, we need a book on this. And, and if I can't find it, I start thinking maybe I'll write about. It. And I got a list of scores of books that 
I just never had it already started and never completed a novel about Florence and century and things like that. Anyway, um, I, that's how I write. So you're you're going on to uh, the, the territory. You're going. You're in a story, and you know how this is. You're invading the territory, as it were, of specialists, and who are going to suspect you right away. But luckily, um, I ran into, as I did when I wrote my book on Chicago, tremendously helpful people. And Terry um, Winchell, who was the park historian down there, opened up the archives of Vicksburg for me and allowed me to work in his office on them. Everybody was helpful, you know. I mean, people made me feel at home in Vicksburg. I still enjoy going down there. Um, and uh, Gordon Cotton helped me, you know, he's the head of the um, old courthouse museum, which is the museum on the city of Vicksburg, and a lot of great stuff on the battle. Um, so people like that could be uh, gave me shelter, fed me meals, you know, drank beer with me. And um, was, writing the book was, was terrific. And traveling around to these libraries was great, making new finds. And that's primarily what the book is based on, primary, it's primary source material. I always say that there might be better historians. I don't know, you know, you undoubtedly are, sure. But uh, nobody's going to out-research me. And uh, so I exhaustively researched that book. And I walked the, the, every battlefield that Grant fought on in the West as well as the East. I wanted to create in the book what I always try to create. It's a sense of place. I want you to know where this character is and what the place looked like, how it felt like, what the weather was like. Anyway, writes that the weather. Tell the readers about the weather, he says. Weather is always so important. And play a big part in, you know, in the action of the characters. And I read a lot of fiction, and I try to use the tools of a novelist. I like Shelby Foote does, and Shelby Foote was a good novelist. And uh, fiction's about narration. It has color, incident, excitement, tension, contingency. And I try to bring all of those things into my history and tell the story not from hindsight, but hindsight can often distort. Sure, I'm writing after the fact. It makes me a phony about hindsight, but wait a minute. If you have the diaries of people who are making decisions day to day, you understand how they felt when they made the decision. Because when they made the decision, they had no idea that Grant's making a battlefield decision. When a family's trying to decide whether to get out of the way of Grant's army or not, they don't know what's going to happen the next day, just as you and I don't know what's going to happen the next minute. And you have to see it from their perspective at the point they make the decision. And uh, then you have a verisimilitude. Then you have a sense of how people you get into motivation and, and why they did things. And you understand that they make them in, in the context of their times. You're not censorious, you know, writing from the 20th century or 21st century perspective. So I... Uh, I write narrative history, but I try to bring interpretation into it. And um, so, um, once the reader, I always put a thing over my desk, will the reader turn the next page? And um, it's, it's a Barbara Tuckman idea, great historian. And um, moving the story along and giving it fidelity um, that is 
making it as close to how it was as you could get using the sources, which are always limited. You always have limitations. But you didn't try to, and that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It took me a lot of time to write the book. Well, it definitely shows in the in the heft of it, but you've definitely got a page turner here. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't write short books. <laughs> I've written a couple, but, um, you know, my editor's always, one of my readers, actually, a friend of mine, said, ah, how about a 300-page book, huh? And, uh, well, I've written a couple, but um, this, when we did get to a point where, like, I said to my editor, it was a tough editor, but we've been together since 95, and I love Bob Bender. Um, you know, Bob wants the story as tight as possible, but he couldn't find any ways to cut the thing. Um, at the very end, I did cut. <clears throat> I have this number posted over my desk, that 29,380 um, words. <clears throat> That's in addition to the cuts that I made as I was going along. Right. And a lot of books are that long. So I got that material out of there. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think there's anything extraneous in it. No, definitely and, not. Um, you know, so far it's not boring anybody that I know. Of course, they're not going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Yeah. But I, it was fun. It was fun to do. And now that I'm on the road promoting a book and, you know, getting some recognition and a prize here and there, I mean, it's it's helping and to make me see, you know, Actually, without inflating myself here, it made me see the importance of what I've done in, in, in taking a Civil War iconic battle and giving it, you know, a new twist. Uh, it a different way. Definitely. You're definitely placing Vicksburg at the forefront, which I think it deserves to be. Um, it's huge. And I didn't say what I should say here, you know, um, as we end this, but I, why why did it break the Confederacy? Well, look, it it was a mortal blow to morale all over the Confederacy. And um, maybe we can't win in the West. The whole Mississippi becomes the Yankee River. And that's hugely important, not just to the farmers of the Midwest, but for military operations. And New Orleans opened as a port to the sea. Sure, it was liberated before, but what good did it do? Um, if, if you couldn't reach it from the North... Um, it split the Confederacy in half. Um, not quite in half, but it split it. And Western Louisiana and um, Arkansas and Texas, they're out of the war. And um, very difficult to communicate with the rest of the Confederacy. And supplies like salt, and, you know, smuggled in rifles from Galveston that came through the blockade, and molasses, which is often used as, as a form of currency. Uh, a lot of those supplies are diminished or, you know, dried up by the Union occupation of the river. But Grant captures also, for the second time in the war, an entire army. Uh, the army of Vicksburg, over 30,000 guys, takes that out of the war, takes Mississippi out of the war, down in Mississippi. Takes most of Tennessee in the, in the, and I should say Western Tennessee out of the war. Takes all the river counties in northern Louisiana out of the war. But it frees 100,000 slips um, and more. 
maybe, maybe the most important thing, and I think, I would say perhaps, <laughs> because um, uh, a little stronger than maybe, and uh, even surely. What Grant did in Vicksburg um, was he found a way to beat the South, and nobody has figured it out before. It wasn't going to be by individual battles. Um, Antietam, then Long Low, and you know, before that, you know, and after that, Gettysburg, and, and then, of course, the Richmond battles and the Overland March and things. Um, fights, and then going to Winter Camp, Long Lows between the battles. Grant fought relentlessly at Vicksburg, and he didn't think of it as a battle just against Vicksburg, and that's where we started this tale today. It's a campaign. It's like the campaign the United States engaged in in World War II when it landed in Normandy. Not just to take Normandy and liberate Paris, but to go all the way there as close as possible to Berlin. And all the smaller battles along the way. And they were big battles as well. Hurricane Forest and Bolt. They're all part of this overall campaign. And that's how great saw things. And just like the armies were coordinated, these campaigns are coordinated and they're worked out in cooperation with Navy and Army as well. Grant wanted all armies in the country to, to operate in concert. And just as he worked with Port in, at Vicksburg. So when he goes to fight Lee, he becomes commander in chief of all the Union armies. And all the offenses, all the assaults, all the battles you now are integrated. They're all part of a bigger plan. And all the armies work in concert. And war is unrelenting. And war is also vicious. It is fought with tremendous determination. And it's fought against, in the East as well, against citizen property. Think of Phil Sheridan, who went into the Shenandoah Valley and Grand Poland in there, which is a bread basket that fed Richmond and turned it into a waste. And uh, he did. And that's the way he fought around Vicksburg. Unfortunately, as he and Sherman agreed, um, this is this is how this is the only way. When you're fighting your people, it's not until the very end, at least for the leadership, um, to hold on to their independence and to hold on to their slaves. Um, Shirley put it bluntly, you have to kill him. And uh, Grant didn't put it that way, but he did say that you, you had to destroy every southern army. And and what these armies depended upon for survival, food and spot for animals. And um, so it's just a war on supply as well as on people. And, and that's how the Confederacy was brought down. And Grant introduced that style of fighting because he was brought back to Washington just after Vicksburg. And Sherman took it into Georgia. Sherman didn't Sherman isn't the originator of the hard war, the total war, the way it was fought in Georgia. He learned to fight under Grant. He had objections to the way Grant fought at first in Vicksburg. He thought that if you allow the troops to rampage and pillage, break down discipline in the army. Sherman was a proponent of order, order, order. And 
so. And when an army's on the move and marching and invading, it has to maintain its integrity and its order. And, but, um, you know, so he has these reservations. And Grant, for example, at one point in the campaign, sends a commander who served under Grant into the Yazi Delta and told him to destroy everything he came across, um, except not to enter the private homes of people. That was always, you know, Grant always insisted on that. It was hard to enforce them. But when he did that, Sherman was taken aback and um, thought he was, it was cruel. Um, and so Sherman learned to fight under Grant. Grant has the, has the he, he's the man of steel, um, not so much Sherman. Well done. So that's, oh, sorry, that's, go that's ahead. the big outtake. I mean, from Vicksburg on, the Confederacy could not defeat, uh, could not win the battle on the battlefield. And by battlefield victories, they could win by not losing, uh, holding on, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong did, holding on and bleeding the North, um, taking casualties, um, delivering casualties, delivering hurt, and to such a point where the home front said, enough, the cause isn't worth fighting for. But Lincoln, to the very end, held tight to that cause, and when he was under tremendous pressure to give up on abolition and uh, let the South come back in the Union without sweat, with, with slaves. And, but he didn't. And he always, and he had some negotiations Secret negotiations with Southern so-called so-called peace talks, but in the negotiation, one thing was, and Grant agreed with him, that was unalterable. Um, there's going to be you're going to come back into the Union. There's going to be separate Confederacy. We never accepted the Confederacy as a separate country. Grant never did either, and they're going to have to come back without slaves if they come back. But they held to that, and and that's again. That partnership between Grant and Lincoln starts out in, in Pittsburgh. And Grant begins to see that this is the way to win. And, 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 and Lincoln sees it as well. Well, I think we've taken up a lot of your time here, Donald. So we like to close out uh, each of these interviews by asking what uh, projects you have lined up next. I think earlier you mentioned that you're working on a next book. Yes. Yeah, this is going to be a book about, um, there's been a lot of books about um, James Peterson, a beautiful book about Grant, his commander-in-chief, excuse me, Lincoln, his commander-in-chief. There hasn't been a book about Grant, his commander-in-chief. About Eisenhower, supreme commander in Europe, but not about Grant, as commander-in-chief, just as a battlefield chief. But from a small little community, uh, a plantation, really, City Point in Virginia, um, you know, in the Virginia Peninsula where the revolution was included. Um, from that little spot, living in a tent and then a two room cabin, Grant directed the entire war. And, and he did it in partnership with, with the president. And so while he's fighting Lee, He's directing Sherman's operations in Georgia, General George Thomas's operations in, in Tennessee, um, and he's directing the cavalry under Sheridan 
Um, and he's directing armies that are trying to take Mobile, and, and he's cooperating with the Navy to close the ports that the Confederate is using to run blockade runners. So it's a, it's a fascinating story. Lincoln's in the White House under all this pressure, and Grant's down there under all that pressure. He's besieging a little town called Petersburg, which is below Richmond, um, and he's besieging Richmond himself. He, itself, he can't break through. It's a longer siege, a far longer siege, almost 10 months in Vicksburg. And if he doesn't win, if he doesn't take Petersburg and Richmond and defeat Lee, if he doesn't make inroads, if Sherman is stopped, uh, if, if Thomas, you know, you know, can't destroy uh, Confederate armies in Tennessee, Lincoln loses the election in 1864. And if Lincoln loses the election, McClellan, his opponent, gets it, and McClellan was willing to negotiate with the South. And the Democratic Party was filled with what were called copperheads who were willing to have the South come in back in with slaves. So it would have been a different country. Um, but Grant had secured enough battlefield uh, victories with his armies, Sherman taking in Atlanta, Sheridan making inroads and destroying economic structure, the whole economy really in the valley. These victories, um, Farragut and Mobile Bay, won Lincoln the election. So a lot's at stake in this relationship. So I'm going to get into that, that little part of the war that turns out to be a pretty big part of the war. You know, I've already started it, the research, and then the embryonic stage is that I was going to take a long break, play some golf and all that. I did a little of that, but well, that sounds interesting, and we look forward to uh, reading that one eventually when you're finished. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate all your great questions. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and we look forward to your next book. Fantastic.